looking at the Olivet Discourse and coming close to a conclusion in it, we will hopefully, Lord willing, complete chapter 25, even though we're going to start verse 1, we'll complete that this month, that's my plan, and it's essentially parables, and when you study a parable, you, you look at them a little bit differently than you do most other passages, particularly passages that are epistolary or passages that are sermonic, like the Olivet Discourse, which is a sermon that Jesus, you might call it a sermon or a teaching. In regular teaching, you go carefully, sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word, because it's very important to follow basically the thought pattern of the writer. But parables, you kind of look at them as a whole. You look at them uh, in their totality. And there's only three of them if you include the last portion in the, uh, the chapter. It's not introduced as a parable, but in some ways it's parabolic. So three parables, we could do it in three Sundays, but it'll probably take us a little bit longer. And actually we have four more Sundays in this month. So that's kind of the plan, and this morning what we want to look at, and I'm going to zoom through these, we're looking at applications of the Olivet Discourse. These applications, I've divided them into two parts. We've already looked at the ones at the end of chapter 24. These are applications that are more related to the second coming, and the reason for that in the immediate context, the last thing that Jesus is teaching on is that second coming when he returns to earth in a visible, spectacular, you might even say physical way. Now, physical, as physical as a resurrection body gets, if you will. So these we've already looked at. And then in uh, chapter 25, we have applications that are related because of verse 1 that we've introduced the last two weeks, we took a little bit of a side trail, you might say, and looked at the millennial kingdom, because this is what the disciples would have been thinking when Jesus introduces that word, and when he describes it later on in verse 31, when he talks about him reigning on a throne on earth, it's during the millennial kingdom. A lot of people think the second coming is the end of the world. That's not the case, biblically. The end of the world doesn't take place for another thousand years after the second coming. There's going to be another era. And that era is radically different than the time in which we are living in. And Jesus, in his coming, introduces, in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus offers that kingdom, and most of the passages that refer to the kingdom in Matthew's Gospel refer to this period of time that Jesus will bring when he, when the Messiah arrives, and he's the Messiah. So he offered this kingdom that I, I gave you kind of an overview of the last two weeks. And if you remember, that kingdom is on earth, its material has physical aspects to it. People are in agricultural and everyday settings, people get married, people even die. And if you die as a young person at a 100 years old, it's unusual. It's physical, but it is different. Uh, 
The laws of nature are altered. Second law of thermodynamics is partially lifted. In fact, the curse is partially lifted. So the environmental situation is radically different than what we experience here and now. You and I will be there in, those of you that have trusted in Christ, will be there in resurrection bodies like Jesus Christ. Okay? I gave you all the background on all that last time. So let's take a look at chapter 25, and it begins with the parable of the ten virgins. It's a parable, and it's applicational. And I'll show you in what way when we get into the text. And my plan is to actually get through all 13 verses, believe it or not. Can you imagine that? So, well, if you want to see a miracle, you're, you're, you're here today to see a, a miracle. All right? Now, there's continuity between these parables in Matthew chapter 24 and this, at least this first parable, the, the parable of the ten virgins, is in fact in this one and the next one as well. In the last chapter, verses 45 through 51, we have the parable of two servants. And one is wise and, and faithful, the wise and the faithful servant, and the other one is not. Two servants, wise and faithful. And if you look at the next two parables in chapter 25, we have a parable of the ten virgins. The five ten virgins are wise, and there are five that are foolish. In fact, the text calls attention to that aspect. So the first aspect is this wisdom, or informed knowledge, you might say, wisdom. That's kind of the emphasis of uh, five of the virgins. Then we have the parable of the talents, and that deals with faithfulness. In other words, they're given responsibilities, and they're evaluated based on how they faithfully carry out the management of those resources that are given in that talent. We won't look at that this morning. Hopefully we'll start with it next time. But the parable of the ten virgins, a focus or a theme is the wisdom of five of the virgins. So there's some continuity. In fact, in the original text, there's no chapter break. Well, in the UBS edited version, there is because it follows kind of the English chapter breaks. But in reality, chapters 24 and 25 are one teaching. And there's no chapter break in the original, the ultimate original. So they just follow one another. So we just have one after the other. I'll show you that when we look at the verse. And verses 1 through 4 deal with the character of the bridesmaids. In other words, what what is behind this wise choice? What is their character? And ultimately, it deals with where are they in terms of their relationship to the Messiah? Where are they in terms of eternal destiny? And we'll look at that as we get into some of the individual passages. So verse 1, and we looked a little bit at this as I introduced this idea of the kingdom. What's the first word? Then. In other words, then implies what? It's it's kind of a time word that tells you that uh, there was something that came before. So it refers back to what he was talking about in chapter 24. So then, in other words, in the same context as the second coming, he's going to talk about something else. In other words, immediately after the second coming, then something else is going to happen. And he introduces this, the kingdom of heaven will be compared 
And now he's just going to give a parable concerning this kingdom of heaven. And he's going to draw some analogies. In other words, the situation after the second coming, then the situation at the establishment of this kingdom that I described last time, it's going to be compared to ten virgins. So we have a comparison. It's a, it's a parable, if you will. It's a story. There's an analogy there. So you need to pick up the whole parable to pick up what he's comparing here. And hopefully we'll be able to, to do that. Now, I spent two weeks on the kingdom, and the reason for that, there's so much confusion in the church today concerning what the kingdom is all about. The most common view is the kingdom is the church, is equivalent to the church. That's amillennialism, and that's, you might even consider it a false doctrine, or it's at least not the biblical view that I think Jesus has in view, or the definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is not equivalent to the church. Our millennialism says there's no literal, no physical, no political, no social kingdom. All of those characteristics we developed last time, and I showed you from primarily the Old Testament. So when the disciples hear the word, and Jesus is speaking to them, the kingdom of heaven, what's in their minds, are that is that kingdom that will be brought when the Messiah arrives... And that kingdom will be on earth. Israel will be released from their oppression of whoever might be oppressing them. In the case of the disciples, the Roman Empire. Messiah is going to overturn, in their thinking, this political system. And he's going to establish a physical, material kingdom on earth with some of the same, well, not exactly the same, but similar characteristics to the kingdom under David and Solomon. That's what's in the minds of the disciples. It'll have social implications, and from Isaiah, from Zechariah, from other passages, it is a utopia. It's a period of time where even the natural realm is affected. The lion will lay down with the lamb. You wouldn't do that today unless you wanted to feed your lion. But the lion will no longer desire to eat meat or be carnivorous. There'll be a flourishing of agriculture. There's, there'll be abundant rain. There'll be security from enemies. All enemies will be subdued. Jesus Christ himself will rule. That's what verse 31 in chapter 25 refers to. He will rule just like a president will rule from Washington. Jesus will rule from Jerusalem. And the disciples will have a place amongst the nation of Israel. You and I will have a place in that material kingdom. That's what the disciples thought of when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to this. It's not talking about the church. So, let's take a look at these ten virgins. And obviously there's different views. And very quickly, the amillennial view looks at a future judgment at a second coming that includes everyone. In other words, it's there's only one final judgment as the second coming. And obviously, if there's no literal future material kingdom, that's basically it. One judgment, then heaven. And by the way, that's probably the most common view of most Christians 
that have not thought about these future things and haven't taken a careful look at passages like Matthew 24 and 25 or the book of Revelation or all those Old Testament passages. Okay? That's the amillennial view. One final judgment. In fact, they would say that it's equivalent to the great white throne judgment. There's not all these separate individual judgments that if you're premillennial, we distinguish one from another. Now, the reason I introduce this is because I see the parable of the ten virgins as an evaluation. It's a, a test. It's a judgment. And we'll see some of the details as we get into the passage. So, the amillennialist would put this chapter at the very end of all world history at the same time as the great white throne, in fact, equivalent to it. There's also a post-tribulational view. In fact, there, uh, there are some in the body of Christ that believe the rapture will take place after the tribulation, after that seven-year period. In other words, the church will go through that horrendous period of time. And this is a relatively popular view in some churches, post-tribulational view. They would see the parable of the ten virgins related to the rapture. In other words, five of them are prepared, five of them are raptured, and the others are not. The others are judged. So they would see a rapture at the end of the seven-year period, and a picture of that would be the parable of the ten virgins. That's a view. There's also the partial rapture view that I introduced way back. There are some that believe that the rapture is not tied to a specific time frame. It's related to the condition of individuals. Yes, there'll be a rapture before the seven-year period, but only of those Christians that are faithful, that are walking with the Lord, and are fully prepared for it. Those Christians that are carnal or rebellious or not walking with the Lord, the tribulation will awaken them, and as they're awakened, then spiritually they'll get prepared, and once they're prepared, then they're raptured. So there's several raptures during this seven-year period of time, and actually one at the end as well. They would say that, the parable of the ten virgins pictures those that are ready. In other words, those that are ready, they will be raptured. Those that are not ready will remain until they're ready. So they kind of fit it into their eschatological system. Now, within a pre-tribulation view, now, remember, you are what? You are pre... Pre-trib. You're pre-trib, but no, you're, no, you're pre-mill. Pre-mill. In other words, you believe that Christ comes before the millennial kingdom. And it's only the Messiah, it's only Christ that can establish that kingdom that's described in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, Zechariah 14, all those passages. It's only the Messiah that can establish that, so he has to come before. So we're premillennial. Premillennial. Yeah, we're premillennial, and we believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation, that's pre-tribulation, pre-trib. Because the tribulation has nothing to do with the church. We've emphasized that throughout the Olivet Discourse. Now, even within this view, there are two views. One of them is the parable of the ten virgin refers to the church. Now, it's different from the amillennial view. It is different from all the other views, post-tribulation, partial rapture. But it still holds to the ten virgins represent the church. Now, there's a lot of problems with that.
Got it. Well, uh, that, that's a good question. <laughs> In order to hold this view, you have to kind of chronologically move things around. Okay, and ignore the little words that you have in the text like then. And I think the then is after the second coming. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared. Yeah, there's some problems with it, obviously. The best view is that uh, the ten virgins represent the nation of Israel. In other words, this is the analogy. The ten virgins represent the nation of Israel. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, Also from the photograph, take a look at the thing that's in the woman that's standing up, her hand. That's the lamp that is referred to in this parable. I'm going to call attention to it later. The lamp. It's actually like a torch. It's like a torch. I'll show you another photograph later. Anyway, uh, just since we have the photograph. So, let me give you the support for the nation of Israel. And like I said, most commentators miss this and overlook this and read all these other ideas. The most common view is the ten virgins represents a church. Now, it does represent half of them, believers, but they're not the church. It's different. We distinguish between the church and the nation of Israel. One, the context. Context determines meaning always. Always, always, always. Context determines meaning. We're talking in the same context of everything else that we've been discussing. We've been talking about the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation is a period of time that is predicted over and over in the Old Testament, even before the nation of Israel is even in existence. Probably one of the first references to it is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is before the nation is even a nation. They're not in the land yet. God is preparing them to enter the land. And already we have very specific details concerning a period of severe tribulation, severe testing for the children of Israel. So that seven-year period, we looked at Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, it's equivalent to Daniel's 70th week. That's the context. The coming of Messiah ends that. And Israel, that seven-year period, is primarily designed to bring the nation of Israel into a saving relationship as a nation to their Messiah. And then Messiah comes, and the kingdom, then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom has Israel as a focus. Israel is going to be the prominent nation during the millennial kingdom. Nations, or Gentiles, will be a part of the kingdom as well, and we will have positions in that kingdom. I think ethnicity still has a place and a part, but There'll be other elements in terms of the nations as well. So Israel is the focus. So this parable, I think, deals with Israel. And if you go to the context in Matthew chapter 25, we have another, what at least an illustration, if not a parable, beginning in verse 31, that deals with the nations. So we have Israel and the nations in Matthew chapter 25. See the context? And he's talking to disciples. This is before there's even anything like a church. The church is not founded till the day of Pentecost, days later, the day of Pentecost, all right? So the context argues for the nation of Israel. The then that we just looked at, after the second coming, now we're dealing with the events related to the second coming, or at least a comparison here, and that would be the establishment of the kingdom 
which is predominantly Jewish. Also, there's a distinction. These ten virgins, they're not the bride. Who is the bride? Now, it's not mentioned in this passage, but other illustrations, as well as the book of Revelation, says that the bride, Ephesians 5, the bride is the body of Christ or the church. So, the bride is gone. The bride is with the bridegroom, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. So, the ten virgins are not the bride. They're like bridesmaids, you might say. And this is typical. We'll look at a typical Jewish wedding as part of our look at this year. And there are specific passages in the Old Testament. Would somebody look up uh, Ezekiel 20? David, you got that one? Israel, it's predicted, and in the context, before the establishment of a kingdom, and even as the Messiah arrives, when the Messiah arrives, Israel is going to come under judgment. And this is just one passage. There's others as well, and this is probably the clearest one. So, Ezekiel 20, do you want to start, uh, read 33 through 35 first? And I'll probably interrupt you. As I live, set the Lord God. Surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, with fury poured out, will I rule over you. Okay? God is going to rule over Israel, and he's going to do it somewhat comprehensively. This is future. Remember, this is at the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament. And he's predicting a future time when he's going to rule over them. That's kingdom. Keep reading. I will bring you out from the people, gather you out of the trees. Okay, there's going to be a regathering of the nation of Israel. So this anticipates their exile and, uh, what's the word? Scattering. scattering, that's the word I'm looking for. This anticipates the scattering of 70 AD. And then there's going to be a regathering, and it doesn't tell us there's going to be 2,000 years between, but there's a regathering, and that's what that verse deals with. Keep reading. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there I will plead you face to face. So he's going to have interactions with the nation of Israel face to face. That anticipates a salvation experience with the nation of Israel, which will take place in that seven-year period. Keep reading. I will purge out from you the rebels, and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of where they sojourn, and they shall not enter the land of Israel, and ye shall know more. Okay. He's going to purge out rebels, unbelievers. He's talking to the nation of Israel in this context. He's looking at their future that we've already seen a lot of details of. When they're regathered, they are brought into a saving relationship. There are some that reject Messiah. They will be removed. And when it talks about from the land of Israel, remember, this is the material aspect of the millennial kingdom. It's going to be focused In fact, the capital of the Millennial Kingdom is going to be the city of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. Oh, so who is going to be gathered like like people who are sort of Jewish? Uh, More than sort of Jewish. Jewish? Yeah, more than Jewish. Yes, this is the regathering of the nation. This is. They are part of the nation, even if they're atheists. Yes. Oh, wait, my cell phone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is ethnic Israel. Okay, yes. But the atheists are going to be separated out. They will not be a part of the kingdom. They will not be in the land. 
is what the text tells us. And there's other passages, uh, Zechariah 13 and, and even 14 and other passages as well. So this indicates that there's going to be a judgment for the nation of Israel and probably the best place in Matthew's account is Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. In fact, the second parable is also going to deal with Israel as well. So during the tribulation, Israel is going to be restored, but there will be some individual Jewish people that still reject Messiah. They will be removed. And the parable of ten virgins, this is a parable, so don't make it walk on all fours, if you will. doesn't mean that 50% of them are rebels. It's just a picture. It's just an illustration. Some will, some won't. Some will believe, some will reject. And this takes place at the second coming. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So we have an analogy of a wedding situation. And these ten virgins, this is part of the overall wedding ceremonies that took place over an extended period of time. I'm going to give you a picture of that. And it'll relate to other issues in the New Testament, as we'll see. But notice they took their lamps. There's at least two Greek words that are used for lamps in the New Testament. I'm going to show you a couple photographs there. And, but what also is important here, they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, the verb there, to meet, is a very unique word. It's, it's a special word. It's, it's to go out to meet a dignitary. In the first century, when a king or the emperor or a significant personage came to visit a city, the city would, in fact, roll out, as we talk about, rolling out the red carpet. That's what it means, to go out to meet. We're going to roll out the red carpet, welcome this individual, give him a key to the city, if you would, in our culture. So it's a special going out to meet. And during a wedding, who's prominent? It's the bride and the bridegroom. So this is an important personage. They're going out to meet the bridegroom. So put yourself in a Jewish situation, Jewish wedding ceremony, of which there were three parts, three major parts to a wedding ceremony, if you will. had three major parts. Some say four, but at least three. First, there's what's called, and you're familiar with this from the life of Christ, the first stage, or the initial, you might say, the beginning of a wedding would be what's called the betrothal. Who else in the New Testament does it refer to as being betrothed? Mary and Joseph. They were in that initial stage of the wedding. And the purpose of a betrothal was, from this point on, a commitment was made to the two parties, the man and the woman. Not two men, or not two women, but to the man and the woman. They made a commitment. It was legally binding. In other words, they were just as married as somebody that had been married 50 years, with one exception. They didn't live together, and they didn't consummate the marriage. It was a period of time, a betrothal period, where the parties were to demonstrate faithfulness to one another. They were also purpose was to prepare them. The woman would devote herself to homemaking. 
and all the things related to her primary role in the marriage. Uh, learning how to make bread, learning how to take care of houses, even taking care of children, whatever related to her role, she would devote herself to that because now she's going to prepare to spend her life with this man that uh, she has made a commitment to. He is preparing, sharpening up his skills of his talents to be able to make a living and begin probably the outworking of that and starting to save money and that sort of thing, starting to work and prepare himself to support the family that he will be involved in. That's betrothal. That's why there's a problem with with Mary because she's in this betrothal period and Joseph finds out what? She's pregnant. What? <laughs> Okay, she's legally bound. So Joseph, as a good Jewish man, a righteous man, he can no longer marry this woman. In fact, he has to put her away. That's kind of a euphemism for divorce her. And he has legal grounds. Because she has, at least in her th- their thinking, she's demonstrated unfaithfulness. She's pregnant. Ever heard of a virgin birth before? Well, not before that time. <laughs> and there's only been one, by the way. Now, At that time, were these marriages pretty much arranged? Sometimes, yes. Yeah, they were arranged sometimes, not always, but generally. It was usually with the consent of the parties as well. So that's a betrothal. And by the way, if you want the analogy, is we are right now in a betrothal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be faithful to him. We are to prepare to live with him the rest of our lives in eternity and in the millennial kingdom. And that's the analogy the New Testament paints of the church today. We are already committed. We are legally bound to him. That commitment that you made to Jesus Christ. There's also the presentation. And what this involved was... On a particular day, usually several, at least several months after the betrothal, and sometimes even more than a year, they would have a ceremony where the bride and the groom would be presented to one another, and the bridegroom would come from his home to the home of uh, the wife, and they would uh, be presented to one another, and they'd have a ceremony there, and the community would be invited, and there'd be bridesmaids, you might say, like the ten virgins, that's what they are. And the time of the arrival of the bridegroom was not known, so you had to be ready for him. And when he arrived, if you're ready, then you go into a third stage called the celebration, and the celebration was a big party, and it might last days. And then at the end of that, then the marriage would be consummated and the couple would live together and function as normal husbands and wives. But they would be legally bound from the betrothal until death do us part, unless they were unfaithful and committed adultery and that sort of thing. So the setting of this parable is in that presentation stage where they're waiting for the bridegroom to come And what they're anticipating, the kingdom of heaven is like this situation because the kingdom of heaven is like a party. It's like a banquet. It's like a great celebration where all are rejoicing, eating and drinking and having a great time in the midst of the bridegroom or the midst of the Messiah. 
That's the analogy. You see that? So the correspondence here, the bridegroom is the Messiah. That's the picture of the parable. Bridegroom is the Messiah. The ten virgins are the nation of Israel coming to be prepared to meet the bridegroom, as verse 1 indicates. And it doesn't mention the bride here, but you might include the bride as the body of Christ. It's kind of implied. It's kind of in the background there. And then two through four, five of them were foolish. There's the foolish, wise contrast. Five were wise or prudent. And then we have the reason for that. Four, verse three, for when the foolish took their lamps, they're foolish because they did, they're not prepared. They didn't take the oil. Took no oil. How do you burn a lamp without oil in the first century? It'd be like, uh, how do you turn on the switch if there's no electricity? They didn't uh, plug in the electricity. Their chargers. Forgot their chargers, exactly, yeah. They didn't take their chargers with them. And their uh, tablets, going to go blank. All right. So, foolish, they took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, the lamps, Luknas, is a typical... Lamp that was used in the first century, and this is primarily indoor. It was probably primarily an indoor. If you took it outdoors, if there was a breeze, it could uh, be blown out. There's also lampas, which is in this context. It was more of a torch, and it was designed primarily for outdoor lighting. That's what the ten virgins have. They have these lamps, but in order for the lamp to work, you have to have the oil... And usually they would have uh, rags that you would dip in the oil and then you light it and that would provide the light. So the picture of the indoor one were these little containers and I have one of these that I got when I was in the Middle East and unfortunately I dropped it and it shattered and I haven't put it back together. But uh, it's an original one that dates to the first century. I dropped it. How many people? Oh, many. many. But anyway, as you can see, you would put oil in the container part, and then it would have that extension there, and you'd have a wick, and you'd light it, and it'd burn, and that's typically what you'd have. You might have two, well, in a room this size, you might have five on the wall, and that was your lighting. So if you wanted to read anything, you'd have to come close to the lamp at night. So that's your home-type lamp. And as you can see, the little flame there, the little breeze would blow it out. So in, indoors is the setting for that one. But one of these other type, a lamp, is like a torch. Like the one in the other photograph and this photograph here. And like I said, uh, it would be used in this setting, awaiting somebody that's coming outdoors. That's the setting there. So... The foolish ones do not have the oil, but the prudent took oil in flasks. In other words, they have little jars or little containers with oil so that their torch, if it burnt out, you could uh, relight it and continue uh, having light. They're prepared. That's the emphasis of this whole parable. So prudent, the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lampas, along with their torches, you might say. And then we have the coming of the bridegroom, that's verses 5 through 9. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, and by the way, this is one of the passages that kind of hints at the possibility that Messiah may not come immediately. He may not come even in the first century. He might come even 2,000 years later. 
There's going to be a delay, and this is one of the passages, and by the way, there's several of them, that indicate that the possibility of a delay between the first arrival of the Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. And from our perspective, we realize that it's been over 2,000 years. The bridegroom was delaying. They all got drowsy. They all got drowsy and began to sleep. So the sleeping is not bad necessarily because the wise are included. But the wise and the wisdom part is, are they prepared when the white bridegroom comes? In other words, it's going to take take some while. You need to sleep. can't stay awake for 2,000 years, right? But at midnight, there was a shout. And the shout announcing, hey, the bridegroom's coming. He's here. He's on his way. He's five minutes away. With a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a celebration. It's going to start at midnight. We're going to stay up all night, and we're going to probably do this for two or three days. This is a great time. This is a celebration. The whole community will come out. And the bridesmaid need to be ready. They need to be prepared, because this is going to be a tremendous time that you don't want to miss out on. So that's through verse 6, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So they've dipped the rags in oil, and now they've got them full-blown, and they're starting to glow for the lighting that will be needed for this ceremony. Remember, it's outdoors right now. Verse 8, the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They're unprepared. They didn't take enough oil in order for them to be able to have oil available at the proper time. Verse 9, but the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Now, this is not, uh, I mean, you don't want to read too much into these parables, remember, but one thing that you might imply here is that you can't give some of your salvation to someone else, if you will, or your spiritual resources to someone else. They have to develop them themselves. They need to make their own choices, their own decisions, their own preparedness. You can't do this for your children. And a lot of believing parents have done all the right things in parenting, and still sometimes their children go astray because they have their own will, their own desire. So if you want to read some of that into that, then that, that would be okay. So they don't give, they don't have enough for them. Salvation is individual in particular. They advise them, go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. In other words, you have to deal with these things personally. But unfortunately, this also implies that there comes a point of no return or a point where the doors are closed or a point where it's too late. There will be a time when it's too late to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim? One of the things that happened is the timing. Because it seems like, I mean, the bride meets the bridegroom, the church is raptured. Yeah. Not necessarily. It means that the bridegroom returns. The analogy would be the bridegroom returns, and when he returns to earth, he's going to return with his bride, or to meet his bride. Is that helpful? And again, you don't want to read, you don't want to make a parable walk on all fours. It's an illustration. Pick out the main things that it's illustrating. The main thing is the bridegroom is the Messiah, ten virgins are Israel. The torches probably represent a profession of faith. And in the case of Israel, I'm a Jew. I'm Jewish. I go to synagogue. I, I do the Jewish thing. I profess to be a believer. 
But the oil represents the inward reality that you can't see. All you can see is the outward. Now that's true of Christianity as well. There are people that go to church that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now this parable is not teaching that aspect, but that concept is elsewhere. This one deals with Israel. The oil, as very typical in the Old Testament, is a picture of inward regeneration. And the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. So that's the analogy. Those are the main things. So we have a distinction here between unregenerate Israelites who possibly only have an outward profession. They're Jewish. They wear the little skull caps. They go to synagogue. They even sometimes read the scrolls. They attend all of the festivals. But it's all external, like the Pharisees of the first century. So we have a distinction between those that are unregenerate and those that are regenerate. Those that have the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jewish people. They have the outward profession, but they also have the inward possession of regeneration. Make sense? So now we have the celebration and the calamity 10 through 12. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And remember, he's going to come unexpectedly. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. In other words, they have entered the kingdom, and the door now is shut. Unbelievers are not permitted into the millennial kingdom at the beginning. Only believers. These are living Israelites that are living through the tribulation. They will experience this separating out of believers from unbelievers. These are living Israelites that are living in mortal bodies during the great tribulation that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and at his coming he is going to separate them out from the rebels or those that have not trusted in Christ. And those that have trusted are going to enter into the wedding feast or the that's a picture of the millennial kingdom. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. 11 and 12, later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. We're Jewish. We've been to synagogue. We've gone through the rituals. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. No personal relationship. No inward regeneration. No salvation. They are excluded from the millennial kingdom. That's the comparison of the kingdom of heaven. Make sense? Isn't the word no particular sense in the very person? Yeah. Ginosko, I believe, is the Greek word to know by experience, to know personally, to know inwardly. Yes. And then the last verse here, verse 13, a caution concerning the unbelief. Be on the alert then. In other words, you Jewish people in the tribulation period be on the alert, or you might even say be prepared, for you do not know the day nor the hour, so you need to always be prepared. You can't just depend on your outward profession. You need to have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit within you. That's the preparation. And if you don't, then unbelieving Israelites do not enter the millennial kingdom. And it's not stated so drastically here, but we'll see a drastic exclusion in the next parable when we get to it. So the essence of this parable, some Israelites will be judged and excluded from the kingdom 
when Messiah returns. And then obviously those that are regenerated participate and enjoy the great celebration, the great feast. Did you see a miracle today? Yes, just squeaked it in there. Squeaked it in there. <laughs> An application we can draw is we can be available to Jewish people today so that we can help them escape that terrible time of tribulation. If they are saved today, they are not only Jewish, but they become part of the body of Christ and will be raptured and escape the great tribulation. So if you know some Jewish people, or if you uh, can befriend them, be available to Jewish people to share the gospel. But be careful, don't barge in, let them open the door to share the gospel with them. If you're too bold, sometimes it just shuts the door and it uh, doesn't do any, any, any good. In fact, it hardens their heart. But sometimes Jewish people, today some of them are called Messianic Jews, Jews, Trust in Jesus Christ today, and he will use you and I as instruments to do that. So be available to them, and in fact, go out of your way. I've got some Jewish relatives that I pray for, and every occasion I try to move the door a little bit open in order to ultimately present the gospel. Who wants to pray for us? Okay. What's the church, uh, Messianic Jewish church like in Israel today? Is there believers in Christ today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's Jewish Christians all over the world. Do you think that, that during the tribulation time there might be a realization that they kind of missed the boat? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the purpose of the tribulation. Yeah. We missed the boat. Messiah is coming, but we can prepare. It's going to be a horrendous period of time, but uh, salvation is available. And during that period, it will be a national turning. Who wants to pray for us? Dave. Father, we thank you, though. Your loving mercy pursues us, the art pursuers, as you love us to the very end, as long as possible, at terrible time. You're still bringing, you're just praising, you're to be insulted, to love them as you're just praising for